Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And I am coming to you from a different location because I'm traveling and actually in Mexico, as is Ronnie Cummins, who is joining us today for our Regenerative Agriculture Food Week, which is coming up here. So that's why we're recording this. So we're going to get an update from Ronnie. He's one of the uh, philanthropic organizations that we support and has been able to do a lot of good work over the years. And uh, we'll see what's happening. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Ronnie. Good to be with you again. Excellent. So you're in San Miguel, Mexico, and I visited there a while ago. That's the center of Mexico. It's really, yeah. Yeah. Kind of like a dry desert there for the most part, especially now it's the dry season. Yeah, we're right in the middle of the dry season now. You know, here it, uh, you get some rain for about three months, if you're lucky, over four months. And then the, the other eight months of the year, it doesn't rain at all. So yeah. it makes, makes it extremely important uh, if you don't have a well, which 86% of Mexican farmers don't have a well, makes it important to use organic and regenerative techniques if you want to get good production and, you know, improve the environment uh, as well. Great. What's been new in the last year? What are the, what are the updates? Well, the, uh, you know, overall, obviously, uh, regenerative food and farming has become a, a buzzword uh, in natural and organic food circles. Uh, more and more people understand what it is. Uh, but unfortunately, a lot of the uh, large corporate, large corporations, agribusiness corporations, are using the term regeneration to avoid going organic or biodynamic, and they're using it more as as greenwashing. So we're still looking for uh, uh, people to understand that you know regenerative needs to be organic or biodynamic uh, as its bottom line. And then you can improve on those practices. But we shouldn't allow uh, big corporations like Monsanto to be paying bogus carbon credits to, you know, industrial monoculture, corn and soy farms in the Midwest and claim that if they change one little thing, like, like they don't plow because they use glyphosate instead, or if they use cover crops, but then they they burn them down uh, with glyphosate. There's nothing really regenerative about that. And if you look, uh, you know, across the world, the farming systems that are really uh, increasing soil fertility, putting more carbon in the soil, increasing water retention, preserving or even expanding biodiversity, and providing a decent living, uh, these farms are using all the techniques of, of organic and and regenerative and these are the these are the best practices we need to be looking at and that need to be rewarded 
uh, for their organic plus uh, practices. So here at the V Organica Research Farm, uh, just outside of uh, San Miguel de Allende in the state of Guanajuato, right in the middle of, a, of Mexico, we're about 170 miles northwest of Mexico City. But uh, here we have discovered from small farmers uh, a type of organic farming and land management that utilizes these desert species that no one's ever paid uh, very much attention to, uh, agaves and then trees like the mesquite or other nitrogen-fixing sort of bean pod acacias. Uh, and uh, what these small farmers discovered is that uh, you can use the leaves of the agave plant, which have always been discarded as waste. And these are more than half of the biomass of a plant. They can be up to half a ton of biomass at the, at the maturity of the plant. Uh, these small farmers discovered that, yes, the leaves of the agave plant are very hard to digest for farm animals. Uh, that's why they've never been used. But they figured out if you chop them up really finely and ferment them anaerobically in a closed container, that this fermentation process after 30 days turns this waste biomass into a very valuable animal feed. And that, uh, you know, here in Mexico, one of the problems with uh, animal feed uh, chains is that, you know, importing 17 million tons of GMO yellow corn from the U.S. every year. Mexico is the biggest buyer of organic, of, excuse me, of GMO corn in the world, not because this is what everyday people eat in their tortillas, uh, but because for animal feed. So one of the things we're trying to get across to the Mexican government is that uh, farmers who are feeding corn to their animals uh, chickens, pigs, cows, whatever. They shouldn't be feeding it to, to cows and herbivores, but farmers that are feeding this feed uh, can substitute fermented agave and protein from mesquite uh, pods or other sources to eliminate uh, this uh, water-intensive, energy-intensive, uh, really destructive monoculture of uh, corn and soybeans. So we're pretty excited about this and farmers are picking up on this across the country. And we are getting inquiries from all over the world because uh, what most people don't know, unless you live in the Southwestern US or a desert area is that, you know, 40% uh, of the world's surface is what's called semi-arid or arid. That is it, it uh, depends on seasonal rainfall uh, and you cannot grow food crops in this 40% of the world's surface unless you have irrigation and most of the farmers don't have irrigation. They're not gonna get it. The wells that are already out there are being over uh, exploited uh, by corporate agribusiness. You know, for example, in this area, hey, we're in a desert and yet this is the largest area for exporting uh, things like, uh, you know, uh, cucumbers, uh, radishes, 
uh, broccoli that use huge amounts of water. So instead of using, uh, you know, instead of exporting these crops, because the U.S., 40% of the U.S.'s vegetables and fruits uh, come from Mexico, but uh, Mexico is draining its aquifers and it's degrading its land to try to produce for the export market. And instead of using what's already right here, the native desert species that don't need irrigation, that can exist on very little water and produce enormous amounts of, of biomass, uh, you know, billions of dollars worth that can be used for animal feed. There's also other products like inulin, which is an up and coming nutritional supplement. It's a multi-billion dollar uh, market across the world. And you can produce the best inulin in the world, which is a prebiotic, uh, you know, from agave rather than from a monoculture over there in Belgium of chicory roots. So there's numerous products. I mean, everyone's heard about tequila and mezcal, but that's just a tiny part of what these plants can produce. So we've come up with a system where you can interplant 2,000 agaves with 400 nitrogen-fixing trees, and you have a really ideal agroforestry system that's, that sequesters lots of atmospheric carbon, for the above ground trees and plants and also in the soil. Uh, and that starts, it's a keystone species, we call it. You can start to bring back to life this 40% of the Earth's surface that is inhabited by poor small farmers, but isn't productive. You know, basically 70%, 60 to 70% of Mexico's land is arid or semi-arid. Yes, it's owned by small farmers, these communal landholders in systems called ajidos, which came out of the Mexican Revolution, 1910-1920. Uh, these ajidos own most of the land in Mexico, but the land they own is uh, like around here, arid, semi-arid, turning into desert if you don't do something about it, and lacking in wells. Like I said, 86% of Mexican farmers uh, don't have a well and they're not going to get one. They're too expensive. Water rights are now vanishing. And so they've got to uh, make the transition from trying to grow, you know, corn, uh, you know, with seasonal rainfall, which is now unpredictable. Uh, so, you know, most of the time, I'm like, we plant corn and beans and squash together. It's a nice mix. Uh, it's the thousands of year old milpa. But the problem is, if the rain doesn't come at the right time, which it doesn't now, uh, four out of five years, and if it doesn't come in a consistent pattern the way it used to over the three, four month rainy season, you don't get, yeah, you get corn stalks, but you don't get corn cobs. So our our harvest, uh, you know, this year uh, in in the fall was uh, we got a lot of uh, we got a lot of pumpkins or our squash. We got a lot of of uh, uh, beans, but we got no corn cobs. So 
uh, how are you going to feed your animals, uh, which most small farmers in Mexico have some animals, goats or sheep or cows, chickens, pigs, but how do you feed your animals if you don't have anything to feed them during the winter season? What happens is that people, uh, they don't make any money from their farming. 91% of Mexico's farms uh, don't even break even. Uh, so they put their animals out to graze uh, during the dry season uh, on the communal lands, but there's very little grass because it's been overgrazed for a hundred years. And so it's a, you just can't win as a, uh, as a small farmer, as a medium-sized farmer anymore in Mexico. So we're hoping that uh, we're going to be able to show people that there's a way to use native plants to produce all the animal feed you need. Uh, we can use protein supplements uh, that grow really well in parts of Mexico, like moringa or, uh, or beans. And you can actually get uh, animal feed to be better than alfalfa and corn uh, at a fraction of the cost. So okay. this is uh, what we're looking at. So with the fermented um, agave, as an alternative to corn, you know, ruminants weren't designed to eat grains, they were designed to eat grasses. Uh, and as a result, they have a pretty low, but even if they did eat grain, it's not that much of a challenge because they, have multiple chambers in their stomach that are serve as biohydrogenation devices. So they can saturate the polyunsaturated fats and the grains. Uh, so this is why ruminants are one of the best sources of animal protein because they have very low linoleic acid. So I'm just wondering if you've ever done an analysis on the uh, linoleic acid composition of uh, the fermented agave you know, how much omega-6 fat is in there because it's not so much an issue for the ruminants, but if you're going to use it for chickens that are non-ruminant animals, that could be a big game changer too. If it, does it, have you looked at the omega-6 analysis or composition? Yes, and, and while I haven't seen that uh, linoleic acid uh, as a, listed as a compound, but we're, uh, we're working with these universities in several states to look at the overall content of the fermented agave. And uh, so far, no one in the country, I mean, the largest organic and grass-fed beef operation in Mexico is one of our affiliates here in this, the same county. They're feeding six to 800 beef cattle. Uh, they eat up to 25 kilos a day of this fermented uh, agave in addition to the grazing they do so 50 pounds or so a day uh, and uh, for they've been doing this for several years and uh, the veterinarian uh, the veterinarians who service this ranch Kenyatta de la Virgen are, have been amazed at the uh, how healthy the cows are in the dry season when all the other cows you know the grass-fed grazing cows are they get really skinny during the dry season uh, and they don't, uh, uh, you know, they're not as marketable. So we, and there's another farm, the, the pioneer farm of this, that's been feeding fermented agave for 12 years 
to sheep and goats and lambs. And they've, they've had amazing results. Uh, the animals uh, gain weight, uh, they stay healthy. And the lambs, which are potentially a pretty big market in uh, Mexico, you know, lamb burgers, lamb ribs, lamb chops, uh, the, the baby lambs can live totally off their mother's milk and off uh, fermented agave for the five to seven months of their uh, of their life before their sacrifice. So we just said here, okay, we're operating on limited capital, uh, but we're you know getting a lot of publicity. Let's said, let's just try feeding this. This was two years ago to our chickens, and they seem to be very uh, comfortable with uh, and healthy. Uh, we got really good eggs and really good uh, chicken here. Uh, they seem to be very healthy on uh, about 25% of their diet being fermented agave. Now the pigs, again, no one else, uh, we couldn't find anyone else uh, that had done this, but our pigs, uh, our pigs love it and they, they're eating up to 50% of their diet. So what we're doing now is uh, we have, we've got a couple of semi-volunteers. We pay them a little bit, but we've got college, uh, college professor, an expert, and a veterinarian who services a couple of hundred farms now working with our staff to get the more exact uh, uh, data that we need. I mean, all of our, all of our animals have names. We weigh them every day. We watch their weight. We time the amount of time that we put them out to pasture. And uh, so we, we have the observational data, but we need this confirmed. Because sure, yeah. I would make sure you're, you're measuring the linoleic acid. That's going to be an important one, especially for the non-ruminants like the chickens. So I appreciate the update on the farm. What about the projects that uh, regenerative agriculture is supporting? I mean, are there any initiatives? Is it is the focus on spreading this information about the fermented agave around or? Yeah, what, well, I mean, we're, we're moving full ahead on this, but we, you know, we keep pointing out that, hey, we discovered a, a best practice that's both organic and regenerative that can be massively scaled up in arid and semi-arid areas, okay? But we don't wanna say this is the only organic and regenerative best practice because there's there's a number of them across the world right now that have the capacity to have as big an impact as the Billion Agave Project if they can be identified and supported. Some of these are things like growing bamboo, construction-grade bamboo uh, in an organic and regenerative manner, or uh, like food forests that people are developing in Costa Rica, Brazil, Indonesia, where you take an area that has been deforested and you restore it with a sort of multi-layered, uh, you know, bushes, small trees, medium, tall trees. You, you end up with a wide variety of, uh, of food products, but you also end up very quickly restoring the health of this deforested rainforest. 
as people learned in Costa Rica and Brazil, uh, the rainforest is not very, uh, not very good soil, not very good for growing crops if you cut down all the trees. Uh, and, you know, but there's practitioners out there who have figured out how to do, how to use organic and regenerative practices. So, you know, and there's others, obviously there's 50 million acres, according to Savory's organization that are under holistic livestock management across the world. You know, there's 200 million uh, acres that are certified organic uh, for food production. There are lots of, of uh, best practices that need to be identified, supported, and scaled up. Uh, most of these are uh, in areas that are either arid or semi-arid that de desperately need to be uh, regenerated, or else they're in the global south, where most of the world's 600 million farmers live. Uh, these are the people who produce 70% of the world's food. Uh, they're mainly subsistence farmers, uh, but they are a, they're into the crunch right now. And so, what, what, is, what, is, what is the, the are the specific countries that are in the global south that, that are producing 70% of the food? It's uh, basically, you know, Mexico, Latin America would be considered global south in this hemisphere. But in uh, in the uh, in Asia, especially Southern Asia, uh, places like Indonesia, places like India, you know, uh, parts of China, it's still mainly small farmers, and then pretty much all of Africa, which is uh, you know billion people. So the uh, you know there's 600 million farms in the world. Only about 50 million of these are the big industrial corporate agribusiness farms that we are used to looking at in the Midwest or, or California. Uh, 475 million uh, of the farms in the world who produce the food for their people, for the 3 billion people who live in these rural communities, are uh, they have five acres or less. And so the interesting thing about a lot of these small farmers uh, is that they don't use toxic chemicals in their agriculture, uh, partly because they can't afford them. They can't afford chemical fertilizers. They can't afford glyphosate. Uh, they're trying to produce enough food for their families and their livestock so that they can make a living. Uh, and this is uh, this is most of the world. The, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN and other bodies uh, have uh, estimated that five to ten percent of the world's, you know, uh, six hundred million farmers are farming in basically a manner that can be described as organic or regenerative. The problem is, you know, they don't have the money to get organically certified. They don't have market access for their surplus products, uh, and the infrastructure is not there. So you see in a place like Mexico that after NAFTA, the so-called free trade agreement was passed in 1994, which took away government support for, for corn growers and, and uh, tortillas. Uh, you know, 2 million farmers lost their livelihoods because they were growing corn. 
and they went to the United States, most of them illegally, because they didn't have any other options. So it's, you know, the idea of regenerative agriculture and, and organic becoming much more uh, of the norm rather than the alternative. Really, this is the solution to the immigration crisis as well. I mean, the people, the people crossing the Mediterranean in leaky boats, paying smugglers to get them to Europe, most of these are rural people who uh, can't make a living on their farms in Africa anymore. And then the United States border, uh, you know, ongoing, there have been a tremendous number of Mexicans from rural areas who it's very hard to get a visa uh, if you're a, a campesino or a small farmer. But nowadays you see people from Haiti, uh, you see people from Venezuela, you see people from uh, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Guatemala, Honduras, Colombia. These are the these are the majority of the people uh, crowded up on the border trying to get into the U.S. Yeah. And basically, if they had to make a living back at home, right. let's uh, shift back to left. Let Let's shift back to food. So, in the United States in World War II, there were Victory Gardens, and uh, it's uh, said that 40% of the produce produced in the United States during that time was by these small victory gardens by homeowners. So do you know the stats as to how much food is being produced by by families themselves in their own homes and backyards and front yards? Well, according to the research groups that we work with, ETC Group and Grain, G-R-A-I-N, uh, there's a very good uh, uh, pamphlet by uh, ETC group called Who Will Feed Us? And it's an analysis of the world food system, you know, which is now it's a $10 billion uh, market food worldwide. It's the largest market for anything at this point. Um, and what you see is there are a billion people besides the 600 million remaining farms, most of which are, are small, uh, there's a billion people uh, on the planet, again, mainly in the global south, who have these, uh, you know, small gardens in the cities. They're producing some of their food. Uh, urban areas, I believe, are only 7% of, the, of the, uh, the surface, you know, of the earth. I mean, in comparison to 40% are arid and semi-arid lands. But People are squeezing out of their gardens and also the small fishermen and fisherwomen uh, are, are contributing a major part of their food supply. And so as we move forward and if we're, you know, if we want to change the, the disastrous situation where tonight 848 million people are going to go to bed hungry, you know, and even lesser acknowledged is that 2 billion people are now approaching the definition of obesity. In other words, the low quality of the food, the fact that in a place like Mexico and the United States, the majority of people's calories are coming from ultra processed food uh, and, and bad meats and, you know, uh, 
you know, contaminated veggies and whatever. But we can solve this problem of uh, those who are literally hungry, most of whom live in rural areas or else they've moved to urban slums from rural areas. If we can improve their standard of living, we will reduce that. But it's not like we got to produce more GMO corn and soybeans in the United States and Canada and send it as food aid to Africa and this will take care of the problem. No, the people have to take care of the problem themselves. Uh, those of us who live in the global north can help, but people have to do it for themselves. And the, all these hunger programs of the United Nations and and so on over the years, yeah, they've helped. They've helped in times of a bitter crisis, but they're not the solution. And the solution is it's got to be organic and regenerative. And as I've as I've said many times, all of agriculture was organic until about 1940. You know, until the close of the Second World War, uh, and it's only been 80 years of this disastrous experiment with chemicals and chemical fertilizers and GMOs and now, you know, lab meat and dairy and, you know, all this crazy stuff. Uh, if you look at the state of health in 1940, at various things like chronic, chronic disease. I mean, <laughs> why is it four times higher chronic disease you know, now than it was 80 years ago. Well, I think part of that is is the diet. Yeah, there's some nasty persistent chemicals that we're coming into contact with uh, that don't make it, that make it more difficult to, to be healthy and not be afflicted by chronic disease. But we have created a monster or we let them create a monster and now we're in a situation where uh, the people with the biggest megaphones, people like Gates or the WEF or whatever, they've stolen all these concepts uh, like sustainable, regenerative, uh, hunger reduction, and so on. And they're basically saying, give us control over the world and we'll fix the climate, we'll fix poverty. We'll fix uh, the, the deteriorating public health. But of course, they're just saying this to, uh, to get money, to get power. And we have to be careful that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, organic has been the norm for 8,000 years. Uh, it works. You can always improve on it. Uh, Yes, special interests have come in, and especially in the U.S., and degraded the standards. But we figured out a way around that, which is we've got these additional certifications like biodynamic, like real organic project, like uh, regenerative and organic certification. And some of the biggest certifiers in the world that we're talking to, like Natureland in Europe, they certify thousands and thousands of organic farms in Africa and Asia. And we've all come to the same conclusion, which is that uh, fighting against the government, the federal governments, 
yeah, it's worthwhile. And occasionally we win a victory. I mean, yesterday there was a very big victory uh, for the the uh, USDA to announce that they're not going to let people anymore uh, use a fraudulent made in the USA label on beef anymore. I mean, my God, we've been fighting this for 20 years. And I never thought we'd win, but all of a sudden they finally do something right. And two months ago, they they tightened up the uh, requirements for importing uh, foreign grains and organic ingredients and, you know, not just letting people claim there are, claim their organic, pay off a few people overseas and get here. But in general, I think we we have got to stop focusing so much on the federal government and look more at what uh, can be done at the grassroots level. Uh, one problem, however, is that uh, world governments uh, subsidize every year to the tune of $700 billion. Uh, corporate uh, aggregation. Ronnie, <laughs> I interrupt you, but I'm still a little bit confused as to the projects you've been working on this year, you know, the update from last year to, you know, because it's good this information as a background, but I, I was looking for specifics. Yeah. yeah. Well, our, our number one project, which we're really excited about, uh, OCA and RI and Hudson Carbon are working with this and we're talking to the 600 affiliates of Regeneration International around the world, is an idea to replace uh, the bogus carbon credits, bogus carbon offsets, bogus payments for so-called prevented deforestation. In other words, the across the board greenwashing that's now happening uh, with a system that is really uh, an alternative. Uh, for example, the, uh, you know, what we're working on is called organic eco uh, services. Uh, and what does this mean? This means basically that we've got to start paying organic and organic plus producers a premium for the food they produce uh, so that they will, you know, become more regenerative and really uh, take over. For example, we've only got four billion, uh, four million certified organic farmers in the world, two hundred million acres. But they took a poll. Uh, Food Navigator took a poll of U.S. farmers, and they found that seventy-one percent of organic farmers in the United States, and I, they probably didn't even include grass-fed uh, grazers, are not certified organic, okay? Across the world, uh, there are 60 billion farmers that could easily be certified organic if there was a financial incentive to do so and market access. So our idea is that you've got this, this bogus multi-billion dollar industry developing of carbon credits and carbon offsets but all the certifiers for these practices are, uh, it, it's as if, yeah, organic agriculture is a good thing, but what if all the organic certifiers in the world were corrupt and didn't care about anything except their fees and letting their buddies? So we need to challenge 
which is happening now, this greenwashing, but we need to put something in its place. And we are just about there with Hudson Carbon with uh, a methodology where we can uh, relatively cheaply measure the environmental benefits of organic farming. But we don't want, what we're saying is, if you wanna get eligible for these organic eco services payments, you gotta be certified organic first, you know, because <laughs> otherwise it's gonna be a fraud. Regeneration uh, that's using GMOs and glyphosate and, you know, chemical fertilizers, that's not regenerative. It's never gonna be regenerative. You can doctor the statistics. Uh, you can get corrupt certifiers to say you're regenerative, but you're not. So we believe, uh, you know, this, this whole ESG thing, which again is greenwashing, right? ESG stands for environment, social, and government governance uh, practices. So basically the whole world now is going where Europe already is, which is that every publicly held corporation is gonna to have to start filing an ESG report along with its financial reports. If you don't file this, uh, they're gonna come after you, SEC or whatever their corollaries are in Europe. And, and I, want, I want to stick to what the updates are though. I know these are important topics, but you know, what is organic consumers focus on? Are you doing something about this ESG? If it's not, then let's talk about yes. something. Yes, what we're developing is a system to where the only payments that we want the polluters to pay and be able to, you know, enhance their PR or their supply chain uh, dynamics are two things. We want them to stop carbon offsetting and do only carbon insetting. That is, a carbon inset is something that a corporation does in its supply chain that enhances these environmental services and you know uh, puts carbon and fertility in the soil or else we want these companies to just pay out money uh, in the form of what the, uh, the the global climate crisis calls uh, MCs or uh, uh, these are mitigation contributions so we don't want Nestle to be able to claim oh yeah we're going to be Net sure. zero emissions by 2050. Look at what we're doing. They have not, to do it. But how, so, what's the plan to get that enacted? Is it legislative efforts, lobbying? Are you petitioning? Well, we lobby, but we've got to use the stick too. One of one of OCA's ongoing sources of money uh, has been that we sue corporations all the time for fraudulent labeling and marketing. And we nearly always win. I think we've we've not won one case we didn't win in the last 10 years. Uh, and what we found is that corporations, if you put enough pressure on them, uh, you know, they'll start to change. They'll change their labeling, they'll change their market. And we're seeing lawsuits already in Europe. You can be sued for, for fake ESG filings. That's good. So when you've sued in the past, does OCA get the funding or is it, does, uh, is that, is that a fine that's paid back to the government? 
No, our our uh, law firm, uh, uh, Kim Richmond and uh, Associates, they approached us many years ago and they offered to work with us on a contingency fee basis. This means that when we have a settlement, uh, we're just about to have one with uh, Tyson uh, in the next few weeks off their fraudulent marketing and labeling. What happens is that uh, the companies will decide at one point, okay, we don't want this to go to a jury trial and to get more bad publicity than we're already getting. So let's settle out of court. And our, our out-of-court settlements, uh, and we've sued people like Monsanto for claiming that Roundup is not biologically active on their labels. Uh, and they they were willing to settle out of court, but uh, they're pretty hard-nosed. They said they'll pay all the legal fees. Uh, they would pay to any uh, nonprofit animal welfare group, but not a dime could go to OCA. Uh, Monsanto hates us uh, for the work we do north and south of the border and all over. But typically, a company will say, let's settle, we'll pay all the legal fees, and we'll pay into a consumer education fund. And so depending on who's been involved in that campaign, uh, Food and Water Watch is one of our regular allies. Um, you know, we get money. So we usually get, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. But we believe we, we're going to have to make the polluters uh, really squirm. If we want them to pay out uh, ESG, companies that filed ESG reports now have total of $125 trillion in assets. That's not billion, that's trillion. Okay, you got all these companies filing these. Uh, they're bragging about their carbon offsets, their carbon uh, credits, their, you know, how they paid to defer deforestation here and there. And it's, but it's now starting to come out in the major media. I mean, we had a call this morning from The Guardian in London, not one of my favorite papers uh, anymore because they're part of the, the whole COVID cult and the Great Reset. But in any case, what they wanted to talk to us about was what do we think about this growing uh, wave of lawsuits and shareholder suits being filed against corporations for bogus ESG and what is our solution? And our solution to this is uh, we can't write a big company's ESG, but we can say if you don't make a sizable contribution to these uh, uh, mitigation contributions that are actually restoring the environment and and sequestering carbon and biodiversity around the world, uh, we're coming after you, you know, because your certifiers, these people like South Pole, Vero, there's only about six major carbon credit certifiers in the world. And it's now coming out that it's all corrupt and that 90% or more is bogus. And that, you know, they're basing stuff on estimations. And the system we're developing with Hudson Carbon is going to be a smartphone app 
uh, that will enable a farmer not only to apply to be certified organic, but will enable them to uh, demonstrate higher levels of regenerative practices. And we're not going to offer this, uh, our organic eco services uh, to just any organic farmer. We want to start out with the best of the best. And uh, so we're not going to, we don't want, we're not going to offer our service to people like Aurora or, you know, a, a factory farm, fake organic or Petaluma farms, a factory farm, fake organic poultry, you know, or these people like Driscoll growing so-called organic berries in, you know, containers with no soil. But we're going to work with the uh, the, or the pre-existing organic certifiers of the world who really have integrity, groups like Demeter, the biodynamic, and uh, we'll let them know what we're doing. We'll show them our app, which by the way, is gonna make it, it's gonna make it much easier for organic certifiers to have an, uh, an online computerized system of records instead of a bunch of copies of receipts and hand-drawn maps of, of farms and so on. Uh, but we know full well, the reason farmers that were once certified organic stopped getting recertified are the reason why the overwhelming majority of organic producers in the world are not certified at all is because it costs money and it takes time. And the recording is onerous. You know, I mean, the organic certifier has to visit the farm every year. Uh, they got to go through this rigmarole. I mean, they'll tell you, oh, the farmer spends half their time trying to find a receipt uh, for their inputs that they used that maybe they lost or something. So we're going to streamline uh, the reporting and verification. But you can also build into an app now. There are about 60 databases uh, that are available uh, in the world that are you know, on satellite photography basically, but you can find the, you can find out pretty much everything you know. Say you're looking at a, a large ranch of uh, 30,000 acres. Uh, Hudson Carbon just did a analysis out there of, of a carbon and eco services. Um, with our system, you do a bit of, you do a bit of on the ground measurement. Uh, we have these uh, super sophisticated drones that are, uh, you can fly over an area, you can cover 50 acres a day, and it can tell you a lot. But what you want, the gold standard of soil health and above ground uh, uh, will be the, um, you got to know exactly where to take soil samples. This place we're working with, the beef, organic beef and uh, grass-fed operation, they're, let's see, 5,000, they're 12,000 acres. And by doing, and it's part of it is mountainous, part of it's flatter, part of it's medium elevation, different elevations, different soil types, different levels of fertility. Um, what you can do with, with what's already out there, the satellite uh, information on elevation, soil types, climate records, all this, you put this together with uh, the data you get from flying some drones over the property, 
either part of it or all of them, you know exactly where to take soil samples. In other words, up until now, okay, you're looking at this farm. Uh, uh, how many soil samples should we take now so that we have a baseline so that we know over time if we're improving the soil, water retention, and so on? Well, it's kind of guessing because uh, I remember this in when we were looking in Minnesota at Reginaldo Marroquin's uh, regenerative poultry operation, the soil organic matter at the base of a hill, you know, where there had been erosion and, and soil washing off, you know, at times was six times higher than the soil organic uh, matter, you know, on the top of the hill, say. And so you want a way to uh, reach this 90, I think we're at 91% certainty. You want 90 to 100% certainty that this piece of land, if it's 10 farmers in a co-op, organic farmers, or if it's uh, just a very large landowner, uh, you can uh, figure out where in the hell do you take soil samples now. And then when you go back in two years, say you had 100 soil samples on a 30,000 acre ranch, that's where you take the samples. And it's, there's no guesswork involved. This will tell you the overall improvement of the land that fits within those GPS systems. And then there's other things. I mean, there's there's formulas you use for every 1% increase in soil organic matter. Uh, you're, you're holding 50,000 uh, you know, gallons of water per acre. Uh, and so you know things like water retention, uh, we use other techniques to, you can determine biodiversity by partly counting, uh, you know, different trees and plants and bushes on the ground, but you can also do it with, we're using microphones now that are tied into databases where they can identify bird calls. And so you can tell how many birds are in an area I say this year, uh, it'll tell you not only what the birds are, but it'll tell you which ones are just migrating across and which ones are actually that's their habitat. And so you have a baseline that you can go back to. And so we basically, it's like, like organic certification. Uh, you want it to be available to the farmer. You want it to be trustworthy. I mean, you got to convince governments and so on that you're legit um, but you also want it to do things that organic certification up until now doesn't require like andre so what, Lowe's did. So what what are the plans to get that enacted and uh what's the timeline of, and that you're looking at well we're we're uh, trying to raise seed money right now to finish off this app we've got several projects under our belt where we're proving this system, but you've got to get the cost down, uh, say with a varied terrain now, say it's $8 a, an acre. Well, that's too high. It's got to be, we got to get it down to a dollar an acre to uh, use this type stuff. But we're, it's not just us. There's a few other groups around the world that are getting close on this, but no, what we're the only ones that are going to say, we're not going to, 
we're not going to get people registered to receive eco uh, payments uh, unless they're already organic, unless they're really organic. Uh, and so our goal is going to be we will pay for organic certification, we meaning the Regeneration International Registry. Uh, we will pay for the organic certification once we've selected a farm or a project. We will pay for the, uh, it's called MRV, the Measurement Review and Verification, the, the work that Hudson Carbon is doing to set you up. And then we will find people who will obtain these credits for you. And so we've talked to about 50 uh, large corporations across the world that are buying large amounts of bogus carbon credits and offsets. And they're, they are at least open-minded, I can say this. They know they got a PR problem. They would much rather, you know, like, like one of our uh, steering committee, one of our board members on Hudson Carbon says, look, yeah, there's $125 trillion in financial assets out there. All these companies, you know, not I guess it's just publicly traded companies, are filing ESG reports that are public. And we can uh, we can start to wage global campaigns to not just embarrass these corporations, but to expose them and to force them to start putting a portion of their uh, uh, assets into ecological, an ecological balance sheet. So that's the grand plan. And part of it is the organic, the organic movement has stagnated. It wasn't so clear during COVID because, you know, we, we grew and, and the natural supplements, you know, sector grew. Uh, but now, just recently, if you look at the reports, uh, organic food has gone up significantly in price and the sales are starting to decline. I mean, it's still growing, but it's growing 2% a year instead of 10 or 12%. Okay, this is ridiculous. Why is it if, if 60 million farmers in the world who are managing a billion acres are already doing most things right and could do it better, why can't we get them certified and make organic and regenerative the norm, you know? And, and why can't we break down these walls, these artificial walls that exist between certified organic producers and certified uh, grass-fed producers? This is insane. <laughs> we're, all, we're all the, facing the same threats, but I guarantee money. We're, we're approaching the, the, the end of our conversation. So I'm wondering if you could wrap it up and summarize what you just said and you know why people would want to support this endeavor sure well we're we're obviously in the middle of a hydra-headed crisis and uh organic and regenerative nutrient nutrient-dense food is what's got to be made available uh to everyone and we can't do this by paying organic farmers enough for their food to where it gets priced out of the range of more and more people. We've got to start thinking of, of how do we pay farmers and ranchers and land managers for the environmental services that they provide 
uh, for all of us uh, and for reducing poverty. Uh, and so we got to come up with a new system. We need a campaign to rejuvenate the organic movement worldwide. And groups like IFOM, the International Federation of Organic Agriculture Movements that has farmer affiliates in 100 countries uh, and some of the best organic certifiers are willing to join together with us to uh, change this situation. You know, if most of the farmers in the world, you know, eight times as many farmers in the world or 20 times are, are, are organic but aren't certified and aren't getting any reward in the marketplace, we can change this. And the way to change it is public education. We have got to expose not only the machinations of World Economic Forum and Gates and the World Trade Organization, but we've also got to point out that this new magic bullet that they're offering up is just greenwashing and that we have an alternative. Uh, and this alternative is organic and regenerative uh, and it's based on uh, the cutting edge science uh, and verification that are now within our reach for the first time because this stuff used to be so expensive, like the drones we use. Yeah, they're $20,000 each. Uh, and you have to buy insurance in case you, you know, have a, an accident. But this kind of drone used to cost $200,000. You know, the price has come down. So it's within the range. Uh, and uh, I look forward to this, just like our campaigns against GMOs and fake food. The first step is to find your partners in the U.S. and worldwide uh, who are willing to go along with this. Uh, and have a, you know, we have a flagship project, the Billion Agave Project, that can demonstrate all this. Then we got to educate the people. We got to go after the polluters and make them pay because farmers can't bootstrap themselves into organic and regenerative. Most of the farmers of the world, they're not going to do it. It's not a question of do they want to do it or is it the right thing. Someone has to pay the you know $10,000 over 10 years that it takes to thoroughly regenerate a landscape you know and it's either going to be governments uh, yeah a little bit will come from market uh, demand but governments uh, are the private sector and at this point in time I think we talked about this at our last interview I actually have more faith that one percent of the capitalists and corporations who own 125 trillion assets. I have more faith in that 1% of those people who want to do the right thing than I do in you know, the US government, whether they're Republican or Democrat, it doesn't seem to make that much difference. And, uh, and you know, we can work at the local level and the state level. And there are some countries that are a little more receptive to what we're talking about, Mexico's one. The reason I spend the majority of my time down here is because the government has declared they want agroecology to be the foundation of Mexican agriculture. They've banned GMO corn, banned GMO soy, and so on. So some governments are All right. well, willing to I... listen, most aren't right now. Yeah. 
Thank you for the update, Ronnie, and uh, keep up the good work. Okay, I hope to see you soon in person. All right, sounds good. Thanks a lot. Adios.